Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November 1st, 2013, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yep, episode 1239. The Friday shows have returned and actually are on Friday. We've gotten through the craziness of October. Uh, for some people, that means Halloween. For me, that meant traveling and all kinds of workshops and everything else. We've got another workshop coming up. we got some really you know, late dialed-in plans on this one, though, where I think it's going to be much easier for us to do and uh, keep content rolling out for you during it. And we won't have 10 days out of state to go along with it. Another workshop and all the stuff. I'm kind of just like, oh, October's over. But I have a message for you, something you haven't heard me say for a long time. It's time to remind you, some of you know it's coming, tick, 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 tick. Time's moving on. The clock is marching. November is here. Two months in 2013, it's gone. Are you increasing liberty in your life? Because if you're not, you're sliding away from it. There are only two ways you head on the path of liberty, forward or backward. If you're not increasing liberty, you're decreasing it. It's a sliding scale and you have no choice. You're either active or passive. If you're passive, time marches on, tick, 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 and society increases oppression upon you. You have to be proactive in this battle for liberty. And I don't mean politically active. I mean personally active in your own life. We'll be talking about that and other things today in developing our own personal liberty, personal libertarian lifestyles, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and independence. That's what we're all about here. Before I get into your calls, though, because this is a call show, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical has all the things you need to live that tactical lifestyle from Maxpedition bags to Magpul magazines and everything in between, including the awesome manly titanium spork, which I no longer own because I put it on the barter blanket and took something in trade for it. So now I need to replace my spork. If you want the titanium manly spork or any other tactical items, and being serious just for a moment, I mean, good stuff, guys. Great gear, great pricing. By the way, members, support brigade members, SawTac gives you guys a discount. Go to your members brigade area first before you order from them to get that discount. You can find their website at SawTac.com. Why are they Sawtooth Tactical? Because they're nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Check them out today, SawTac.com. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that is what it is, says what it is, and then does what it says. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go, point, click, buy on their website, ship to your door, great pricing and lightning fast service. And I mean everything, solar check, wind check, tactical check, practical check, long-term food storage check, long-term storable food that's already packaged check, dehydrators check, you name it, guns, gear, gardening, everything you can think of, they've got it. ReadyMadeResources.com. And if you're buying cases of Mountain House food, you can even get some free silver. If you're an MSB member, check the benefits section of your MSB to learn more about that. ReadyMadeResources.com. The best way to visit Sawtooth Tactical, ReadyMade Resources, or any of our sponsors, go to my website, which is TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Again, it's TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Or if you're from a different part of the country, you might say TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Either way, it's spelled the same way. 
get on by if you've never been there. A lot of you guys listen on iTunes and uh, Stitcher Radio and things like that. We have a lot of resources available for you at the site, including our forum. If you're not a member of the survivalpodcast.com forum, I have to ask you one question. Why? If you'd like a free PhD in preparedness, get on our forum. One of the best run forums out there. Amazing people will be part of the community. The survivalpodcast.com and click on forum and you can learn all about it. All right, before I get to your calls, I've got one more thing for you today, uh, something I haven't talked about in a while, but 13skills.com. Uh, the 2013 year is almost over. Uh, don't wait till 2014 to start developing your skills. Get over to 13skills.com and commit to improving or developing 13 skills in 2013. If you're getting started now, maybe you won't get them all done, but set the bar high, and even if you don't clear it, you'll jump higher than you thought you could. 13skills.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll help support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. You get great discounts like the ones I've talked about, free videos every week, members-only videos that are put up for you, available for you, and a lot of other really great stuff. Check it out. Uh, again, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members or the Member Support Brigade banner, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, and Prior Service. Uh, if you send me an email before you join, and, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters also qualify for this, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, what you did in one or two sentences, I'll send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. Again, the email to send that to is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And the subject to put in the subject line so that I know that's what it's about is service discount. All right, with that, let's get into your calls. Before I take your calls today, I want to remind you, if you make a phone call, uh, call our phone line at 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. I'm going to say a couple things here. Hopefully nobody gets their nose bent. I'm just trying to help you guys out getting your calls on the air. Number one, call from a quiet location. Do not call where it's noisy. Number two, if you're using a cell phone, check your bars. If you don't have at least a couple bars, wait till you have a couple bars. Don't call from a remote area with one edgy bar and you like that on the air. The next one, this is where I might bend a nose or two. Please get to your point. Let me say it again. Please get to your point. If I'm listening to you for 30 to 40 seconds when I'm screening calls, and I have to go through lots of calls to find the ones we're going to put on the air, and you've gotten in a 30 to 40 seconds, and I still don't know what your question is, I hate to say this, but I'm going to tell you the absolute truth of what happens. I go, bored, delete, just like that. Ask your question or make your point up front and then give me details. If you do that, the odds of getting on the air go exponentially up over, Hi, Jack, this is Tom. Thanks for what you do. And uh, I was looking at my pond the other day. And by the way, if you uh, if you know of a place where I can get some barley like you guys are feeding your chickens, I'd like to know about that. But what I'm really asking about is so like my pond has this thing and then I'm, yeah, and it just keeps going. And in the end, the question's about, like, keeping bees. Some of you guys do that to me. I'm not trying to beat anybody up. But if you do, your call's not going on the air. Try this for me, guys. I'm, I'm, I know I sound like I'm being a jerk. I'm not. I'm trying to help because I want – because I feel bad when I – some of you guys, it's like the same person over and over again. Um, this is what I want you to do. Write your question down like you're going to send it in an email If you take more than two sentences to get the entirety of your question out, try it again. Call. Ask that question. And then say anything that comes to your mind after that question. If you do that, you'll, you'll do a better question 
and I can do a better job giving you an answer because I'll actually know what you're asking a question about. Anyway, before I uh, get any of your questions and calls, we do have some great ones this week and a couple uh, couple pitched out to uh, Stephen Harris. Lots of questions already for the expert council next week. Um, in fact, real quick on the expert council, here's where I could use questions for next week because I don't have any. Brian Black. If you guys could get me a question for Brian Black, that would be good. Um, I could also probably use one for Kerry uh, Davis. That would be another person I could use a question for next week. I've got Tim Glantz. I've got Stephen Harris. I've got Chef Keith Snow. i got one for Falk. How about one for Darby Simpson? If somebody wants to call in a question for Darby Simpson to the expert panel, uh, that would be great. And uh, Frank Sharp Jr. could use one. So uh, I could use Brian Black, Frank Sharp, and Darby. All could use a question next week. If I get that, next week we'll have a show with every council member on it. Uh, I would need those questions early, like Monday or Tuesday at the latest next week. Expert council questions work like this. You call in a question. You say, hey, Jack, this question's for expert council member fill in the blank. I have a question about blah, 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 blah. When you're done with it, email me immediately, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put expert council in the subject line and say, I just called a question in for whoever you called it in for, from number XYZPDQ, whatever the number is, and then I can find it a lot faster and make sure it gets over there. So uh, that's who I could use for next week. Uh, Black, Sharp, and Simpson. If I get one for each of them, what a home run show we'll have next week. Um, Black, actually, Black, Sharp, Simpson, and Kerry uh, Davis. All right. With that, let's uh, go ahead and start taking your calls as soon as I cover the history segment. Uh, 1239, what happened? Uh, not a lot. Pope Gregory the Ninth excommunicates Frederick II, Holy Roman Emperor. It seems like during this period of time, any time a world leader does something a pope doesn't like, he throws them out of the church, and they just keep doing what they, what they don't really care. Anyway, um, the interesting thing that I picked up, uh, Mongol invasion of, of Russia is in progress, and it brings with a pandemic of Rinderpest. Rinderpest is a disease that many modern people have never heard of. It was officially wiped out in 2001, and I guess the reason you don't really hear a lot about it, that it generally didn't affect people directly. It was a cattle plague. Um, it affected uh, cows, buffalo, and other uh, bovine animals, large antelopes, deer, giraffes, wildebeest, warthogs, things like that. Very similar in its manifestation to those animals, smallpox. Um, and... Uh, It's only the second disease in history that the World, the World Health Organization and the United States FAO have determined and called, declared eradicated. Like it does, like smallpox is gone. We've destroyed it with vaccines and things. And whether you believe that or not, that's what they say. Um, it also was very highly um, researched as a chemical weapon, biological weapon. Um, in fact, the U.S. was, you know, working with it to a high degree to weaponize it until we discontinued our biological weapons program. Do you believe we've really done that? I don't. Um, for the reasons would be a couple of things. One, you could, if you didn't want to kill people, you could decimate a nation's ability to feed itself. And two, of course you could make this something that would be a, a, a variant thereof that would kill people. Of course you could. Have they done that? I don't know. But um, I think, again, most people have never heard of Rinderpest, R-I-N-D-E-R-P-E-S-T. And um, that's what it is, a disease that was a, a plague among cattle and other animals. 
Uh, they caused a lot of famines and starvation. The interesting thing in 1239 is that it was an invasion, a war that brought with it a pandemic. And a lot of times people say, well, is pandemic or economic collapse a bigger threat, etc.? And my lesson for you from history today is that when you have one disaster, you have others. So when you have warfare, you get starvation, you get you know, economic collapse, you get pandemics, you get epidemics. And when you get natural disasters like hurricanes or you know, tornadoes or storms or blizzards during these other things, it dogpiles on. So there's a lesson there. Be prepared. Let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack. This is Ben in Denver again. Uh, my question is, what kind of ratios do I use for composting? Here's my situation. I am pulling in more leaves than I know what to do with. I'm kind of going crazy this year. And so far, I've done about 60 bags, huge, huge trash bags full of leaves. And um, kind of basically harvesting those from local parks and other areas. So uh got a whole bunch of leaves so far. Uh, my neighbor has horses, so I have access to horse manure, which I've been getting some of that too. But uh, basically I'm just wondering what do I start mixing in with all these leaves to do some decent uh, proportions so I don't have too much of one thing or the other. Uh, that's it, man. Thanks. All right, so let me add to this. That, uh, ben followed up with an email right after he did this. I said, dude, I sent this question in by the phone, and I left out one thing, because I know you're going to tell me to go get grass clippings, and, like, it's Colorado, and it's cold, and it's there's no more grass. Everything's brown. It's dead for the year. So I, I can't use grass clippings. So please include, you know, concepts there when you're responding to me. So that is an issue in northern climates. And let's face it, this would be a great time to be making tons of compost um, in those northern climates where maybe you're not doing as much gardening or maybe you can use the heat from that compost to do things like heat a greenhouse or uh, heat a, a, a hot frame uh, or heat hot water. I mean, or there's all kinds of things you could do with that compost heat if you had it. So what, what to do now? Let's start out with the ratio. Here's the good news. Your nitrogen to carbon ratio is about 25 to 1 favoring the carbon. Think of it this way. Carbon is the is the fuel and nitrogen is the gas. So greens and browns. Browns fuel green gas. So if you're going to burn logs, you don't need as much gas in, in volume and weight and what have you as you need wood, right? So if you had a... If you had a pound of wood, you wouldn't put a pound of gasoline on it to get it burning. Right? So think about it that way. You know, you would put a lot less. So it's a 25 to 1 ratio. So you don't, you don't need that much nitrogen, but you need some. And it doesn't really look like 25 to 1 because a lot of the nitrogen components have a lot of carbon and other things with them. And it's only the part of them that are nitrogen. So, I try to look at like the volume of what I'm putting in, a green to a brown, of about five carbon to one. So five to one in what it looks like. Uh, if some people would differ with that, all I can tell you is my compost works just fine. Here's a couple ideas I have for you. 
First and foremost, when people think green, they immediately think, well, it has to be green. No, it just has to be nitrogen. We just, we kind of with plant matter say, hey, if it's green, we know it's really higher in nitrogen. And the same thing that's green today and nitrogen today, if it were dried out to a brown, is going to be much more of a carbon at that point, right? So that's what I'm saying about the volume issue. The best source you could get right now for nitrogen is probably manure and cow manure would be great. So you're in cattle country. There's probably lots of sources of uncomposted cow manure. And uh, cow manure with those leaves will compost very, very well for you. Um, I also recommend that when you're building your compost, you're building at least a cubic yard at a time. With the amount of leaves you have, that doesn't seem to be a problem. And one of the things you could really do to amp things up and to get a better, faster breakdown is take those leaves, put them in a great big pile, and run a lawnmower over them or a tractor mower over them a few times. And then rake them up and get them into more of a crumbly, you know, shredded leaf world. Or if you got a small chipper shredder, tossing them through there would be a way to do that. I don't recommend that people buy large chipper shredders, by the way, because they're expensive, costly to maintain, and costly when they break. And generally speaking, you can put a bunch of stuff up and then rent a shredder chipper for a day for like, you know, a few bucks from Home Depot or Lowe's, run it and be done with it. Or if a really big one, Like if you're doing a lot of tree trimming and stuff like that, one that you would tow behind your car, those will run you a couple hundred bucks a day, but you're still better off with one of those once a year or twice a year than you are trying to maintain one of these things on your own, unless you're doing like a group share thing. Just like throw that in there. Because if you were somewhere where the trees were nice and green and people were pruning and you were getting shredded tree stuff with a lot of green leaf in it, you could use that as a green tube, but you can't do that either right now because everything's not you know, green. So I would look to manure as your main source of green right now. Whether that be chicken, whether that be rabbit, whether that be hog, whether it be cattle. But I would look for cattle and so I would do that. The other thing I would say is, you know, don't think that you, you know, it's like a huge deal. You don't have a lot of green right now. Those leaves will store in bags for you just wherever you can store them. So maybe store some of them up right now for um, for spring when you have more greens accessible and available because this is the time you can get leaves. You know, we're not quite there yet. The trees really haven't started to drop here yet, but we're going to be going on like leaf missions in another couple weeks. Uh, just hit the suburbs on a Saturday afternoon, man. I mean, and when you take, I got one piece of advice for you. When you pick up leaves like that, you don't want to end up with somebody's disgusting garbage mixed in with the leaves. So look for bags that look like they're only leaves, and when you pick them up, that they have that lightweight leaf appearance to them, uh, unless you meet somebody with a vacuum shredder. there's a My neighbor in uh, Arlington had this thing. It looked like a blower, but it worked in reverse. It vacuumed up leaves, shredded them, and compacted them into a bag. If you can find people to do that, those people are like a gold mine. They've done a lot of work for you. So keep storing your leaves up. The other thing you've got to realize is that leaves will break down all by themselves. They will turn into wonderful soil. Over time, if you don't, you know, if you go into a forest, pull back your leaf litter and you'll just see thick leaves, smaller leaves, smaller leaves, fungus all over the leaves, wet leaves, dirt, black, beautiful dirt. So you don't always have to compost leaves to make them an asset. Again, I really recommend hitting them with a lawnmower, then mulch like crazy and let nature take its course and, and you know, cover your ground that you're going to be planting in next year with four inches deep of shredded leaves. And you it, just let it go. It'll handle it by itself. And that's a lot more leaves than you think it is. Four inches of leaves that you've picked up in bags that are whole, 
is not much. You know, one bag can cover a big area of four inches. Shredded, that volume goes way down. So, uh, again, just running over it with a lawnmower a few times, rake it up, run it over again, rake it up maybe three times, and use that as a mulch. And, and let nature do the work for you instead of turning a compost pile. But, yeah, definitely store some up for spring, and you're going to have all that great grass clippings. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. But, again, your main ratio with carbon and nitrogen is really 25 to 1, uh, favoring the carbon. Hey, Jag, this is Ray. So here's a cool thing. Got a spaghetti squash from the local uh, market, and it's one of those uh, Western family-affiliated markets, so it's a little local chain. And uh, the spaghetti squash that we got, I don't know if this is how old it is and how crappy uh, our supermarket system works, but it's also kind of cool and a testament to how nature works. When we cut open the spaghetti squash, there were four sprouts in there. So we planted the sprouts uh, as best we could in a pot inside. <clears throat> it's been two weeks now, and they're growing amazingly well. But also, like I said, how long has that spaghetti squash been sitting on the shelves? Um, and I know they're good for a long time, but at the same time, at the end of the harvest, you think we get a little bit fresher produce. But also, again, testament to nature, permaculture. Nature does what it, <clears throat> excuse me, what it will, and it will find a way. Well, it's interesting, and I've seen it happen in many uh, fruits and vegetables, honestly, um, and not necessarily indicative that they've been stored improperly or for, for too long a time. Usually it's more of a temperature thing and a maturity thing. I've opened peppers uh, that have basically like a little pepper growing inside of them, uh, which is kind of interesting. I've definitely seen squash with seeds sprouted in it. And it's just how, like, that's how that plant would reproduce if you weren't there. Um, a squash plant, a pumpkin, anything like that, you know, if you don't pick it, you let it go. It form, it gets really, really big and the tough outsides, and it's more like a gourd at some point. It starts to go hollow, and it's all gooky in there, and it kind of sits over winter, and it rots in its own stink and its own little pile of compost that it makes for itself, and then it grows next year. And many times, especially when stored in warmer temperatures, squashes will start to have seed sprout. It's amazing how well they grow. And it it doesn't really say anything about the quality of the food. If the food looks good, smells good, tastes good, isn't you know overripe or rotting in any way or going off on you, um, then then there's nothing wrong with it. So it doesn't necessarily mean there was anything wrong with that spaghetti squash. And spaghetti squash and many other squashes do store for a very long time. That's why they're such a staple for many homesteaders. The squash that I've seen that is least likely to do this seems to be butternut. We one time wanted to just see, well, how long can you store a butternut squash? I set three of them in the windowsill, the windowsill in a Texas home in the winter, And they made it till about July of the next year before they started to go off. My wife was not amused. She did not like my experiment. She kept asking me when they were going to go away, and I told her when they get bad. She was actually happy when they went bad. I took them outside and was playing with a machete and throwing them in the air and chopping them in half because it was fun. And uh, we just got a new machete from Colt Steel, and my son and I thought it was fun to do that. And uh, we didn't find any sprouted seeds in there at all. So they that would have taken quite a bit longer um, I imagine, though, if that butternut had been you know, allowed to go to full maturity, like I said, and sat on the wet ground through the winter, uh, it would have uh, been more likely to have been ready to sprout. But it's interesting 
to notice things like that. And one thing it tells you about your food, when you buy it and it has something like that going on, it's still alive. So I actually think it is a good thing. Uh, most of the sterile food that comes out of our system today has been herbicided and sprayed and stabilized and doesn't do that. You know, they put retardants on potatoes to keep them from sprouting and things like that. Of course, you have to understand that whatever they've sprayed on that food doesn't wash off and you're eating it. So I actually think that's a good thing. Thanks for sharing that. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Paul from Australia. Um, I have a, um, I have a power dome and, um, I, I like it. I use it quite a bit, but I'd like to just, um, provide a, uh, sort of word of warning for people that may have a diesel. I have a, um, I have a, uh, a, a sort of, uh, 15 year old Toyota Hilux diesel, uh, three liter. Um, and I've been using the power dome, uh, when I've been going off to my off grid property. It's been handy, uh, for various things. But my battery went flat on my Hilux, um, about two months ago. And, um, so uh, this was an exciting opportunity for me to use the powder. Unfortunately, um, the, the, the powder doesn't, doesn't have enough juice to start a diesel. This is something I didn't appreciate. Um, diesels actually require quite a bit more power than your average petrol vehicle. Um, and I suppose mine's a fairly big diesel. Um, and they, the, the power dome didn't actually, wouldn't, wasn't actually able to start my car. Neither was my friend who came over with jump leads was able to start my car with his car. Um, so um, I just wanted to pass that on. And also, maybe a question for, for Steve. I, I suppose it, it concerns me a bit as to what would happen, um, you know, if I hadn't called out the RAC and they had a whole carousel of batteries and they had a big one that they were able to start me off of to get me going, um, what, what options are there to get a, get a vehicle started? Um, diesel, um, because it might not be so easy for me to get a jump if my battery was flat. Um, and the other thing is um, uh, when I when the RAC started my car, they recommended that I that I use something called Fast Start because I had a problem with the glow plugs, and um, and I managed to get it started a lot easier using Fast Start. It's like a, a spray, a sort of I think an ethanol spray that you spray or something like that that you spray into the where the car the the air intake on the diesel. Um, and I was just wondering as to the long term effects of using that um, and whether that's recommended. Okay, thanks very much. Somewhere out there right now, Stephen Harris is going, ha, 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 Luke, I was right, your lightsaber fails you. Because Stephen Harris absolutely, positively, 100% hates uh, jump packs and things like the Power Dome EX. I am going to say, Steve, stay on the dark side. We don't need you over here in the world of the Jedis. The... The Power Dome EX is a great product for what it is and within its limitations, and Paul has run smack dab into one of them. Um, diesels, in fact, take a lot more energy to turn over than your average passenger car. My diesel uh, truck has two huge batteries in it, uh, so it you know it's got a it's got a lot of power that it's requiring to turn over. Paul's may not be as intensive, but it's probably quite intensive. But I will say this, it is most likely, and if I had not heard the second part about his friend's vehicle not getting it to start, I would have surmised this. But um, th since that did occur as well, they, it's not that the Power Dome couldn't jump you if you needed a little bit of a boost. It's you couldn't get that thing to start because the battery was D-E-A all the way dead, right? Just Just drained down. This is something for you guys with diesels to think about. That truck or, you know, what have you does take a lot more power to kick over. 
I have successfully jumped my giant Ford F-350 with a Power Dome EX. But this is what happened. I got in the truck. I knew these batteries were, were marginal. And they, it was one of those things where it's not about a money thing. It's a, I got to take the time. I got to go to the store. I got to get these two big heavy batteries. I got to unbolt them. I got to take them out. I got to clean the leads. I got to put them back in there. Oh, I don't feel like doing it. And then they, they're working just fine. You're looking at them going... This truck's five years old. Those are factory batteries. The guy that owned it before me was from Nebraska. It's been through four Nebraska winters. Change your batteries. <sighs> Not right now. And it's just a bad prepper mindset. But I was busy with everything. Um, this was right when the show went to a full-time thing. And I get in the truck, and we had a really cold night. And I turn the truck, and the little glow light plug comes on, and I wait for it to go off, and I turn the truck, and it went, and I meet, as soon as I heard that, like it wasn't going to go, I stopped. I stopped, I got out my trusty Power Dome EX, put up the lid, I hooked it up, and I waited. I waited a good five minutes after that. I went back in, turned it on, let the glow plug light come on, and it started. And uh, if I had probably allowed that thing that when it went to go like that, doing the first time, that that little little box would have probably never kicked it over. There was just enough energy in those batteries to give it a little bump and get it to turn over. And diesels usually, once they do give one good hammer turn over, they fire up for you. So. If you have a diesel that's all the way dead, that thing's not going to start. And many regular cars, in, in fact, power dome EXs and things like that are for when the battery's just kind of gone off to the point where it won't work anymore, right? It won't it won't do the job, but it's not drained to the bottom. When it's drained to the bottom, it's very hard to get something like that to be reliable for. You. It's one of the reasons Steve hates them. But the fact you got a radio, you got a little little uh, inverter, it's portable, it moves around, and it will jumpstart most vehicles. The first time that they failed, if they haven't sat for a long time and totally drained the battery, makes them a valuable addition to what you have. Um, but yeah, they've got their limitations, that's for sure. The big lesson here isn't the limitations of the power, though. The big limitation here is vehicle maintenance. And to not do what I did, and possibly what Paul did, I don't know, but to when you know... Right, You know that battery's been there a long time. And you know that we could go into a grid-down scenario where it might have to be there for a lot longer. Even if that battery's still functioning, there's a point where you say, you know what, it's time. It's time to make this piece of maintenance get done on my vehicle. And I say that's true with your hoses and belts. There are two things that fail a lot on vehicles that are not that hard to replace, but if they fail at the wrong time, then you're in a real world of hurt. What I like to do with belts and hoses is another little Jack Spirico tip and trick for you. Get to a point where you're like, it's time. Don't wait till they look really, really bad. Replace all your belts and hoses at one time. Give the, the used ones a good cleaning, you know, just good warm water, soap and water cleaning, and put something on them as a conditioner. Um, something like... So take your old ones, give them a, just a, a basic cleaning with like mild detergent, simple greens, a good cleaner, just warm water really, just so they're not filthy and disgusting. And keep them somewhere with the ve with your kit for your vehicle. Like especially if you have a truck, put them in your, your, uh, if you got a truck, it's a truck toolbox. So you have a, th those there. So why, why do that? Well, um, if you really want to do it high end, then go ahead and get brand new hoses and belts, get two sets, right? 
But basically, that's your backup. That's your backup. You've got new new belts and hoses on your vehicle, and, and you've got the old ones as a backup because you replaced them before you really needed to. So, I mean, that's the big lesson is look for the parts of your vehicle that have the potential for failure. And hoses, belts, and batteries are some of the big ones. And hoses and belts, it's kind of easy to have spares around. Batteries, not so much. And make sure you're doing a good job maintaining your your, this, your system, your battery system. Uh, you know, at least once a year, be you know disconnecting your batteries, cleaning all the terminals. Uh, a little you know, a little baking soda and water is a good way to do that. Get them nice and dried off. Uh, both the the lugs that that bolt onto your batteries and the battery terminals themselves, and it gives just a light coating of like grease, like a basic grease, like you would grease a chassis with, is all you really need. And uh, that'll do a lot to maintain your batteries. And when you're getting toward the end of life cycle of a battery, don't procrastinate. It's an expense and it's a pain in the butt. But it's a lot less of a pain in the butt than being stuck like Paul somewhere in the outback uh, with a vehicle that won't start. Um, of course, the solution is to get yourself a good electric plug-in starter. Uh, and as long as you can find electricity somewhere or a generator, you can get anything started. Unless, of course, the... The problem is bigger than just the battery. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Rational Husker from the forum. I was just calling to see what your current perspective is on the economy, but also the stock market, asset prices, all those things. You haven't talked about that as much recently, or if you did, I missed it. Um, I'm wondering to see if you, what you're expecting now in terms of um, actions by the Fed or changes in, in um, activities by the Fed. Are you surprised that QE3 hasn't really done all that much, especially for the economy at large? Obviously, it's kept the markets afloat or caused them to rise. But did you think that that action would be more dramatic than it has been? Are you still looking for that? Or do you think we're just going to sled along here and, and gradually climb until we don't? And what kind of things are you going to be looking for to let you know that it's time to start getting defensive again? when it comes to your financial assets. Thanks, Jack. Uh, let's start out. First of all, QE3 has done exactly what I said it would do when I said it would work. It's put a, ba a bandage on a gangrenous wound. And it's actually done a very good job doing what it was supposed to do if you understand what it was supposed to do versus the justification for it and what they said it would do. What it was supposed to do is stabilize the markets, keep liquidity in the markets, and basically put the United States economy into a sideways skid that creates the illusion of long-term stability because we're now like, you know, instead of going off of a cliff, we're like Japan. We're just kind of, huh. Everything still works. If you really want a job, you can find a job. Don't tell me you can't. It's not a great job. The The... Ongoing erosion of your income continues unabated. Things get a little bit more expensive. It's not hyperinflation. It's not even rapid inflation. It's a slow, steady, grinding away inflation on a stagnant wage pool uh, with people having to continuously, that have lost jobs, eventually succumb to the fact of new reality is whatever job I get won't pay what the last one has. Yeah, we have innovation and things that I'll save for later. And a generation that gets beat up on that some portions of are doing some really cool things with. There's this certain amount of life to the United States of economy. It doesn't want to die. It's like a cancer patient that's fighting uh, because we're all part of that fight. 
Um, you know, look, look at me. I'm building businesses. I'm the guy that's telling you sooner or later this is all going to crash, and I'm building businesses. There's a reason. So what I, what I feel is going on right now is an abundance of cheap energy, uh, a massive amount of money that is beginning to flow into this country as we become more and more of an energy exporter, and that's only going to continue. Um, but the underlying problems are still there. And nothing's being done to make them go away. And more and more people are becoming aware of them. And remember what money is. Money is not paper. It's not gold. It's not silver. It's not Imodium 235. You know what Imodium 235 is? Anybody that can tell me what Imodium 235 is, uh, first email I get. The Imodium 235 explosive what? Send me an email with that in the subject line. First person that does gets a free year of MSB. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go way, way back, I think, there for most of us to uh, a time when you watched cartoons on Saturday mornings and they were actually funny, real cartoons instead of the nonsense of the day after kids today. But anyway, I, I digress. I think that what, that's what we're going to see is this illusion of stability, dips and dives in the market, up and down, up and down, but just kind of this sideways motion, an economy that's lackluster but not falling apart. And unemployment actually continuing to go down as people just decide, I got to do something. Uh, under this cancerous sore, you have the leech that is Obamacare that will be sucking away, uh, especially at service sector jobs where many employees are going to see their hours that were, you know, they were formerly working 35, 36 hours a week, uh, going to be cut below 30. A lot of service sector employees that rely largely on tips for their compensation, like in the you know restaurant industry, will end up having to work two jobs. Companies will actually bifurcate into multiple companies and have good employees working both of them. It's going to be really weird is the best way to put it, but yet profits will continue to come in to companies that know how to work in this environment. Um, you know, Kind of on that note, yesterday we got one of our financial statements in. Dorothy opened it up and went, Wow, our portfolio's gone way up. And I said, that's because we're invested in companies that make money and produce dividends. Is it the dividends that are really making the money for us? No, it's the companies that can pay dividends, are profitable, and they're attracting investors in this climate. So I can't give you the companies. I don't do that level like I am invested in these 10 companies or whatever, but that's the type of companies I'm invested in. Companies are consistently paying dividends in this hard economy are doing well, both from the dividend perspective and from maintaining increasing shareholder value. So I don't see that changing radically anytime real soon. The government's also, I've talked a lot about this. I don't want to go too deep in this today. But they've set a trap that benefits them and, in a way, the whole economy. So the big fear is that one day the markets will begin to crash and foreign entities won't buy our debt and the Fed will only be able to buy so much debt uh, and the U.S. You know, ability to borrow money will go you know, downhill fast. And But at the same time, right, what have I told you about your 401k? That inside your 401k, they have taken away, in most instances, very few people have a cash option left in their 401k. They have a U.S. government bond fund in their 401k. So, if the sky begins falling again like it did in 2008, 2009, and people start dumping their stock 
mutual funds inside their 401ks. Most people won't cash in their 401k and take the, the penalty and the hit. If they do, by the way, the government gets a big windfall on tax penalties. All right? But they won't do it. What will they do? They'll go to the safest thing they can, which will be a bond fund, which will mean at the time the market's getting hit, the government's now set a place for your money to move to that benefits them turning over short-term and mid-term U.S. debt. So they've actually played this game of chess very, very well. They've set up a situation for a tax-funded, taxpayer-funded bailout using private pensions. They've done it without passing any laws at all. They've simply incentivized and somehow colluded with large corporations that run these pension programs to change policy internally and take away one option and replace it with another. So as stocks are liquidated in the future, all of the money that's held in 401ks anyway will largely run to U.S. debt. So at the time when the, when the economy is being hit the hardest, at least the first round of this fight, the government will get lots of money through the back door, and that will allow them to continue to print money by issuing more debt. You got it? So there's like this whole can of worms that has to slowly be unraveled before this thing finally falls apart. And, you know, I don't know when it's going to happen. Now, the next question touches on this yet again, and I want to say something I'm not going to. In fact, after this next question, I'm going to let, we're going to call it an impromptu expert council member uh, speak for me before I give you my thoughts on it. Uh, let's go ahead and take that next question now. Hey, Jack. Kevin from Texas again. Uh, sorry about that last call. Just kind of keep that between us. Got a question for you, though. The Chase Bank thing brought something up and then lied to me. Uh, you were talking about, you know, incoming collapses. I remember uh, the Argentina collapse that, uh, of course, everybody, you know, seeking out dollars as fast as they could. Uh, just curious, if you were to invest your U.S. dollars into another currency, not advise them to, but just wondering, what would you do? Which one would you choose as the uh, currency to go with? Just curious. Thanks. Um, I, I, there's two things that happened when I heard that question. Immediately I had an answer, and immediately I knew there was somebody that maybe had more credibility than me that answered this question quite a long time ago. I'm about to play for you the audio from a video that was released by Dr. Ron Paul. To put things in perspective, this was uh, released by Dr. Paul in February of 2010. I think it answers the question perfectly, but I'll come back with some additional thoughts. But uh, if you don't believe me, how about Congressman Ron Paul, a man that's been telling us the truth for over 30 years, continues to do so. Uh, the only politician I know that's never broken his word, uh, not once, and has remained consistent the entire time, and a man that's been, unfortunately, proven right far too many times to count, especially about things like the economic reality that we're in today, uh, the devaluation of our currency, and the rise of a police and surveillance state. Uh, I'm going to call Dr. Paul an honorary member of the Expert Council uh, today in answering this question, Dr. Paul. Uh, from the past, over three years ago, what say you? It's impossible to predict the time when confidence will be lost, but it can come quickly. Resorting to buying other paper currencies will not be of much help. 
When the dollar crashes, most likely the purchasing power of all currencies, since all currencies hold dollars as a reserve, will go down as well. This means that dollars and other currencies will go into buying consumer items, precious metals, and other physical properties. Consumer prices will soar as well as interest rates. The central bank will lose control, and the more they inflate, the worse the confidence becomes. The interest rates will respond to these efforts by rising sharply. If the Fed tries to reverse the run on the dollar, interest rates will also soar, and the pain on the American citizens will be of such proportion that political chaos will result. Either scenario leads to political and social chaos, the third event, and the most dangerous. With no ability of the federal government to fund its commitments, international or domestic, major changes will occur in our system. The social unrest will elicit cries for government to exert unusual force to head off a complete breakdown of law and order. The ultimate trap will be set for a system of government claiming to protect a free society. If more power and police authority are not given to the federal government, it will be argued that only anarchy will result. If more government policing power is given, it will mean a lethal threat to civil liberties. Already, we have permitted the notion that a single person, the attorney general or the president, can decide who is an enemy combatant, thus denying that individual the right of habeas corpus, permitting indefinite detentions without charges made. This attitude towards civil liberties has changed significantly since the fear built around 9-11. Yes, I know, declaring one an enemy combatant is reserved only for the radical Muslims engaged in terrorism against the United States. To be reassured by this reasoning is quite dangerous and naive. Logic should not lead us to equate suspects with terrorists and include American citizens. And yet, this has already been set by precedent. Under difficult circumstances, our political leaders will not be hesitant to use these powers to maintain order. Tragically, the people may even demand it. We are rapidly moving toward a dangerous time in our history. Society as we know it is vulnerable to political and social unrest. This impending crisis comes as a consequence of our flawed foreign and domestic economic policies, a silly notion about money, ignorance about central banking, and ignoring the onerous power and mischief of -of out-of-control intelligence agencies our unsustainable welfare state and a willingness to sacrifice privacy and civil liberties in an attempt to achieve safety and security from an inept government. Dangerous times indeed. What can be done about it? Must we wait for the inevitable and expect to restore our liberties in a street fight against the overwhelming power of the state? Not a good option. The only way that we we can prevent blood from running in the streets is to offer a better idea of the proper role of government in a society that desires first and foremost liberty. And that is impossible without a firm commitment by our thought leaders to the ideas of freedom, the source of all creative energy and prosperity. And all powerful state is the threat to that ideal. The prevailing attitude of the people, as it once was in early America, must be that of liberty and self-reliance, rather than the nanny state and dependency. Rely on, on the government force to mold all private choices. If this is understood, a smooth, although not painless, transition to a free society is achievable. Ignoring this option will be very destructive to everything that is dear to the hearts of most Americans. What is it that we must do? We must immediately embark on... Balance the budget by reducing spending. 
change our foreign policy so to that of non-intervention, a full audit and more supervision of the Federal Reserve, leading to abolishing the Federal Reserve, legalized competition to the Federal Reserve with competing currencies, regain respect for civil liberties and privacy while reigning in the CIA, wean ourselves off the dependence of wealth transfers by government, Abolish crony capitalism, no subsidies, no bailouts, no regulatory or tax privileges to protect the powerful elite, especially the military-industrial complex. Eliminate the income tax, the inheritance tax, and taxes on savings and dividends. None of this can happen without the restoration of Congress to its dominant position of the three branches of government, as was originally intended by the Constitution. The executive and the judicial must be reined in and Congress must assert its prerogatives over all legislation curtailing all unconstitutional agenda through budgetary controls. Signs abound that angry Americans are now more ready than ever before for a change in direction that is indeed real. If this program were improvised, even suddenly and dramatically, the adjustment, though significant, and to a degree somewhat painful, would be much shorter and of minor consequence compared to the chaos and poverty that will result if we refuse to change our gluttonous appetite for a free lunch. Now, quite honestly, I could have played um, the first minute of that, and it gives you your answer that you can't run to paper currencies when the dollar collapses. Uh, I'm going to talk about how that could change, maybe, um, but probably won't at least in a time frame where we'll be able to do anything with it. What Dr. Paul's saying is that, you know, if you run to, you know, Japanese currency or Australian dollars or Canadian dollars at a time when the U.S. dollar is collapsing and the dollar is the reserve currency, there's nowhere to go. That's This is what I guess people don't get, or maybe some people do get, but take it to the extreme and go too far with a United States economic collapse, a failure of our currency, or even a significant revaluation, let's say a four-to-one reverse split, so a dollar's worth a quarter overnight, uh, a planned revaluation, a reset button, which is what, you know, I, 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 when you look at Argentina, it's exactly what Argentina did. They just said, we'll just devalue our currency four-to-one, and that will reduce effectively our debt to 25%. It's kind of like bankruptcy that only a state can get away with. Right, you know, like credit dealers that can't really do it for you lie and say they can. Like, if you owe ten thousand dollars, call us and we'll pay off your debt for two thousand dollars. Right? Um, it's kind of like that, but you can enforce it because you have the power of the state behind you. So you just devalue your money and screw all the people you owe. You're gonna get, you know, your million pesos, but it's gonna be worth two hundred and fifty thousand pesos. That's that is exactly even the number is a four to one is exactly what Argentina did. So, what did Argentinians do? They immediately started converting pesos to dollars because it didn't just stop with the four to one planned. Then the currency went into an inflationary and people didn't want it and people were trying to get rid of it. And, um, so it was literally burning. And, you know, it could be worth less next week than it is this week at that point. So they either spent it immediately, which continued the devaluation, or they converted it to dollars as soon as possible. Argentinian government came in and immediately put capital controls in place, making it very hard for you to convert your money to dollars to hold the money in the nation, which is exactly what I said they're getting ready to do here. 
They're putting the chase thing is just the first salvo. They're putting capital controls in place. You can't send the money overseas, but you can receive for money over receive money from overseas. You can't have tra transactions in cash greater than fifty thousand dollars a cycle in a bank anymore with Chase, and other banks are following suit and doing this next. That forces all the money to the surface so it can be seen. It's not moving in cash. It's moving electronically, and it contains it within the nation. This is what our nation will try to do. The difference is every other nation's in the in the basket with us. Argentini, Argentina devalues its currency. Okay, great. What does it really do to us? Not much. What does it really do to France? Not much. It doesn't. Now, if the euro gets devalued in you know, a revaluation, it's a global currency, so it has a huge impact on the global economy, but nowhere near what the dollar does. Because the dollar is the reserve currency. In essence, everybody else's currency to a large degree is backed by our own, since it's not backed by gold. It's backed by debt and dollar debt. And the dollar debt being a linchpin in it. So the only safe place for your money... Once you think that's happening or you're putting long-term money away that, you, that would deal with this one threat, and understand this is one threat, and you can't go one-dimensional and only plan for this one threat economically, but if that happens, the dollar burns. The dollar gets revalued 10 to 1, 4 to 1, whatever. The only place that you can put in compact wealth storage is gold and silver. That's it. There's nothing else. And would it work? Maybe. I'm not saying it will, but it's the only it's the only insurance policy that can work. Or buying assets. That's it. Now, how could this change? If the world gets tired of this, and it's already doing this, and begins moving more and more toward a, a place of establishing new reserve currencies, such as the BRIC alliance currency scheme with a Brazilian... Indian, Russia, and Chinese currency making up a basket for reserves. But I, I think that's the dream of the BRIC nations. Um, and I don't think that even happens. I think what happens is more and more nations just start to do direct exchange without using the dollar or the petrodollar. And more and more nations start creating their own reserve baskets and creating ways for nations to choose what they hold in reserves. If that occurs, you'll see the dollar, instead of burning, start to melt. Is this this because it won't happen? It won't be like one day the dollar is the reserve currency, right? It'll be the reserve currency status of the dollar is slowly eroded over time, kind of like the wealth of the middle class. Gee, almost like the two are the same thing. Hello, okay. So as that occurs, you have this this long transitional period, and you and it's happening now. When you see Australia and China trading directly, it's the beginning of the erosion of the status of the dollar as the reserve currency. As that occurs more and more, as it becomes less and less true the dollar is the reserve currency, then you got to start looking at the players in the game and the reserve currencies and the status of reserve currency from one nation to another. And maybe at that point, if we go that far before the country you know, burns its currency to the ground, maybe there does become an alternative. If you can do it, Because as that occurs, you'll see more and more capital controls preventing you from doing it. And right now, opening a foreign bank account and things like that are very, very difficult to do. So I, I got to tell you that your, your best play, silver and gold. Silver and gold, silver and gold. 
I'm not saying go all in. In fact, I'm saying don't go all in, but five to ten percent of your wealth in silver and gold as a, as a safety net insurance policy on the rest of your wealth is probably a really good idea. And as Dr. Paul told us back in 2010, going to other paper ain't going to help. Not if it happens any time in the next five to five years, I'd say it's, it's not going to do anything at all. It's going to take at least that long for that reserve status shift to occur. That is the plan globally. That's what the other nations want. That's why we're not sunk yet. They can't afford for us to go down. Uh, we're, everybody would still be in our wake and come down with us. And, and that, that's a, a large sense of how we've lasted this long, as bad as seem, things seem. The other side of the comments by Dr. Paul, a lot of the comments he made about a rising police state uh, were mocked in 2010. Those that mocked him in 2010, with everything that we've seen come out in 2013, just three years later, about the government and spying programs, snooping on Americans, building dossiers on all Americans, hopefully some of those people are no longer laughing. Hey, Jack, this is Keith from Parachute, Colorado. i got an expert counsel question for Steve Harris. Uh, what would the feasibility be of a Fresnel lens and or a parabolic dish powering something like a Sterling engine uh, or maybe a very small-scale steam turbine? I don't know if that one's very feasible, but maybe the Sterling engine uh, that was connected to, let's say, uh, a really efficient or one-wire 100-amp alternator or generator uh, powering either a battery bank or maybe we could work that into power a uh, chest freezer or some, some other type of appliance um, and then... Does he know of any good solar tracking systems that aren't, you know, horribly out of the home builder's price range? Thanks, Jack. Talk to you soon. Bye. That is definitely a Steve Harris question, and uh, I have my own opinions about it just basically being vaporware. But, uh, Steve, what say you? Keith from Colorado. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Well, let me put it this way. There is not one Sterling engine on the face of the planet that you, as an individual, can buy. Not one. And don't anyone write to me about the Whisper Gen and their production unit and everything else because it has been unavailable for the last five years and won't be available probably anytime soon. If you've ever heard of the term vaporware, that's what it is. Now, I can show you a nice Sterling engine at the Henry Ford Museum that was made over a 100 years ago, and it works. But let me tell you, there is not one, not one Sterling engine that you can purchase that's not some dumb, stupid toy that you hold in your hand. There is not one working Sterling engine that will produce any usable amount of power that you can buy. Now, are there Sterling engines out there that actually generate electricity off of solar? Yes, there is. But guess what? Those are reserved for only the government with government grants and the cream from the government tit. These things cost millions of dollars a piece, and they are only for collegiate research and power companies and government grants and everything else. Your tax money at its best, so there is not one Sterling engine you can possibly get. Now, even if there was a Sterling engine you could get, now you need a concentrator. Now you need a parabolic concentrator. 
and now you need a focusing system. And, and just making a concentrator is not the easiest thing in the world either, okay? It's a perfect parabola in most cases. And that's just not an easy thing to do. And in order to get a decent amount of power, you're talking about an eight-foot dish. Now, on top of that, like you said, you need a tracking system. You need a two-axis tracking system. No, there aren't any any affordable two-axis tracking systems out there that's going to track to the sun to the accuracy that you need for a solar Stirling engine system. There are two-axis trackers out there for flat solar panels, but they don't have to be within a fraction of a degree of the sunshine for its focal point to be at the right point on the Stirling engine. So I'm sorry, but it's complete vaporware. You are not going to get a Stirling engine solar concentrator to make energy for you from a Fresnel lens or from a parabolic dish. I want to emphasize something for you guys, and that is this is not Steve Harris being negative on solar energy. You've heard me being very negative before on solar photovoltaic panels because... Well, listen to my past stuff, and you'll know why, because. However, this is the type of solar energy I live, eat, and breathe. A solar-powered Stirling engine is real solar energy. It has the ability to be many times more efficient than a silly photovoltaic panel. This is something that can make more energy than it took to make in a matter of months and years rather than the 30 to 40 years it takes to get the energy back out of a solar photovoltaic panel. Solar thermal energy, solar hot water, solar hot air, solar mechanical, like the Stirling engine, solar chemical energy, those are all the real forms of solar energy that I have spent my entire life researching and working with, and it is the stuff that I advocate the most. So I just want to make, let you guys know this is just not me being negative on this because it is solar-based. I'm negative on solar fo- photovoltaics if you don't have at least three months of food and water put away. Okay, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. If you want to hear all the great stuff I've done with Jack on energy, and it's all DIY hands-on, you can use it today. It's all at solar1234.com. Thanks, guys. Call in some more questions. If there's someone that knows more about this crap than Steve, I haven't met him yet. Anyway, uh, on that note, I do have a second question for Steve today. So let's, I'm going to go ahead and just take that second question. And uh, instead of coming back, I'll just go right into Steve's answer, and then we'll come back, and i got another uh about four or five for you guys before we wrap up today. Hi, Jack. Michael from Virginia. Uh, love the show. Have a question for Steve Harris. Um, I have, under the uh, great instruction of, of his uh, participation on your show and his websites, I have created a battery bank um, with... Um, Six-volt GC uh, batteries. I have um, I have eight of them, and the question is on maintenance of those batteries. I have the system plugged into a smart charger, and um, also it's fed by solar panels, and everything is set up the way that he instructs. My question is, other than checking the fluid occasionally. Is there anything else that needs to be done, or will the batteries just continue to maintain that charge 
for for years to come. Um, I, you know, every day I go and look at it and make sure that every, you know, that the voltage and everything is good. But I just was wondering if there was any other maintenance that needs to be done um, other than checking cables and checking fluid levels. That's my question. Thanks so much for um, all that you do, and look forward to answer for the answers. Michael from Virginia. This is Steve Harris on the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Answer is no, Michael. There's not a darn thing you have to do. I designed the whole system to be automated and basically maintenance-free, foolproof. It'll sit there and it'll work and it'll work and it'll work and it'll be there and ready to go when you need it. That's what I designed the system to do. All you got to do is check the fluid levels in the battery. And now something to make that easier for you, I have an automatic battery a two-quart capacity plastic battery filler. That's what it says on the website, two-quart capacity plastic battery filler. It's over at battery1234.com. It's about halfway down the page. and makes watering your batteries easy. Now, remember, for watering batteries, you only use distilled water and nothing else. So you put distilled water into this thing and you shove it down into one of the holes of the battery. And it's got a little thing that opens up and everything, and it automatically fills the battery right up to the right level and then turns itself off and stops. It won't overfill the battery. It won't underfill the battery. So that will make life a lot easier for you. Also, just make sure the uh, cable connections don't get corroded. Sometimes the battery acid, uh, usually this is in cars and not on things in your house, but the, the connectors can become corroded, and you'll see that orange build up on them and everything. Make sure that do, doesn't happen. A simple wire brush and some soap and water can clean that off easy. However, that is about all there is to it. For all of you new people out there who does, don't know who Steve Harris is, you want to hear all the really good stuff I've done with Jack in the past, including how to build your own home power emergency battery bank, you can go to www.solar1234.com and listen to all the good stuff. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Call in some more questions. Jack Karim from Chicago. Question regarding concealment vests. Are they a good idea? Um, here in Illinois, we're going to be getting uh, concealed carry coming through in January, I believe, is when they're going to start issuing permits. And I'm considering buying a concealment vest so I can carry a larger handgun. But at the same time, my concern is, am I advertising to everyone that I'm armed? Thanks. Bye. Personally, I think they're a great idea. Um, concealment vests and concealment jackets, concealment clothing in general, uh, I find when it's sufficiently climate-wise, you know, fitting for me to wear things like that uh, in my state, that they are extremely comfortable and practical. They do an excellent job of concealment, and I actually prefer to carry that way than like an inside waistband holster. So I think they're a great idea. Does it advertise that you have a gun? No. Unless you go get yourself a mocked up, you know, 5.11 tactical, you know, thing with a bunch of loops and molly crap on it and all your water on that. It kind of says, hey, I'm a tactical guy. And whether you, that's a concealment vest or not, it kind of advertises, hey, I'm a gun guy. 
Uh, of course, so does an NRA sticker on your car or a NRA T-shirt or a American Shooting Society or a hunting shirt or a camo cap or anything. You know, kind of would at least, you know, lead you to the belief that that person might be there. The, some of the coolest clothing that exists is made, you know, by the people who do the Scotty vest. And they actually have a jacket that's specifically designed for concealed carry. But there's, you know, just a, a huge assortment of things. So the Scotty vest stuff is hard to beat for its versatility beyond just being a concealed carry tool. The nice thing about the Scotty vest brand stuff is it's very widely used by yuppies. And techno geeks and things like that. It's very widely known. A person walking around in, in, in that doesn't really stand out from the crowd at all, even if the brand is recognized by a fellow tech geek, right? Because it's for your iPad and your iPod and your phone and it's got places for your ear pads and everything, but they're a great option for concealed carry. So I would look at their stuff and I think that, you know, walking through the streets in, in, in Chicago, in cities and what have you, um, you know, to an office job or something like that, you know, wearing that type of attire, you fit right in with other people that, you know, that range the gamut of anything from sportsman to yuppie and everything in between. And I don't think you stand out. There's a little side note here. And part of why I decided to run this call was so that I could teach you a bigger lesson about carrying. Don't be stupid when you carry. Don't advertise that you're carrying. You're, you, Kerm, you're exactly right for asking the question in the first place. Does it advertise you don't want to? I'll tell you a little story right now. Um, I was with Brian and Kelly Black and my wife, and we went to a bar to throw some darts, drink some beers. And we're sitting there, and it's like, I think it was the T TCU game was going with some big TCU game. So there's college kids in from the other college and the TCU college, and we're all at this bar, and you know, they're kind of being kind of ruckusy and all, but they're, they're not being bad or anything. But there's one group playing darts at the board next to us, and one of the guys says really loud, who walks around with a loaded gun in this age? And like the one dude like points both his fingers at himself, and everybody's like fawning on the fact that this guy obviously is packing. And Brian and I just look at each other and just, I'm like, so like, if we wanted to take somebody out right now, he's the guy we would take out. And if we were nefarious, like, as soon as he said that and the way he moved, you saw exactly where he was carrying. And the guy had no idea how vulnerable he was at that point. Now, fortunately, you're dealing with guys like Brian and I, we're no threat to him. But he has no way of knowing who hears that. By the way, that could even be considered brandishing, right? Because as soon as he said that, like, you could just see it printing. Like, you, re it wasn't real noticeable, but as soon as you were looking for it, you're like, so Texas has taken some steps recently to make the brandishing law a little bit more freaking common sense, that there has to be intent. But if you're saying it, and then it's displayed, you have a lot of problems there. So... Good question, man. Uh, keep thinking that way. But uh, don't let it prevent you from choosing an article of clothing that works very well. And frankly, I'll tell you something that works great for carrying like small-sized um, semi-autos, like the Bursa 380. Good old standard Levi's jean jacket. The pockets that your hands go in actually have a, like a, a pocket on the inside. And those jackets carry beautifully with something like a Bursa 380. Uh, pull, reach, grab, out. And some people say, oh, get a holster, get all. I'm telling you, some of the, some of the clothing and some things that are by design and some just by chance, like Levi's jackets, carry better. They feel better. They carry better. They draw easier. And uh, I think they're a great option for concealed carry. Let's take another call. 
Hey, Jack. This is Jay from South Florida. Do you believe cities will be able to pay pensions in 20 years? I'm a firefighter and a pension board member for the wealthiest town in the U.S. I don't 100% rely on this pension. However, it does play a huge role in my financial planning. I also wanted to make a correction on your Stockton, California pension comment. I believe the article meant to say they can collect 60% after 20 years of service and retire at age 50. They would need to work 30 years to collect 90% of their salaries. Jack, thank you for helping me improve my family's future. Other than our home, we are debt-free and close to canceling that debt. Uh, I'm 32 years old, and my kids only drink Berkey water. Thanks for everything you do. Um, it's almost a permaculture question where the answer is it depends. And it, it doesn't just depend on what happens in in the economy in general and how we deal with that and how we transition. Because we will definitely, like I say, we can't put a timeline on when we're going to have this major economic shift. But I will tell you, it is not 20 years. It is, we, there is no way we go 20 years from today right now and not deal with this and not have a major shift. So how that shift plays out, all these things are dependent upon what, if anything, cities will be able to pay in pensions or whether they'll be there or whether they'll be burned to the ground in some instances um, but let's look at it from a totally different standpoint uh, which city which pension to which people and how much of said pension I don't think that it's likely that all the pensions just won't get paid uh, out on but I would plan financially as though that were the case right now I would not bet your financial future in your life on your pension and understand that you could end up in a situation like this. The nation revalues the currency, okay? It's not just Social Security people that get hit with this when this happens. Basically, the currency gets devalued four to one. You're given what's promised you based on the old number and your pension that was going to pay you $4,000 a month pays you $4,000 a month. And it has the value then that today $400 a month has. That is an option. Most likely what will happen is you'll have cities and counties and states go bankrupt all over the nation. And most pensions will get trimmed, cut, sliced, and diced. And something will remain, but not everything will remain. It is not financially possible that most cities will be able to meet their full obligations in 20 years. It's not unlikely, right? It's not possible. It can't happen. It cannot be done when you look especially at the larger cities. The money necessary does not exist if it is to be created and become existing currency. It will so devalue the money that that's what you're looking at is a $4,000 pension might as well be a $400 a month pension. It's something, but it won't do much for you. It, it, it's, it's the only way that it works. If you are a city worker and you're more than five years from retirement, assume that your pension will be half of what's promised. If you're a city worker 20 years from now, it's probably true that unless you have the total, complete de de demolition of the country where it doesn't matter anyway, that something will exist, but it will be nowhere near what you expect. Either direct theft or indirect theft. Either threat theft by inflation or theft by just saying you're not getting it now. It's going somewhere else. It can't work. It doesn't work. And it's not going to work. You'll probably get something. Plan on getting nothing. 
I'm going to say that again. If you are 20 years out from a pension being paid by a county, a city, or a state, you'll probably get something, plan on getting nothing. And by the way, apply that to Social Security as well. You'll probably get something, it won't be shit, and plan on getting nothing. You want better news than that? I don't have any. That's the facts as I see them on the ground at this point. I do not see any scenario in which the obligations of the federal government through Social Security pensions or the vast majority of city, states, and counties' pension obligations can be met 20 years from now. It doesn't work. And again, if it does work mathematically, it is only through the systematic devaluation of the currency to a point where, yeah, the bill can get paid, but the bill doesn't buy what you expected it to. Nowhere near. And I'm not talking a little bit. And I'm talking probably you get a hybrid. The value of the money gets cut down to 10 to 20%, and the amount of the payout gets cut down to 40 to 50%. And I think that with some of the things we're headed for, that might be a best-case scenario. Plan for nothing. You'll probably get something, and it won't do what you think it will. Well, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Alan in Houston. I just want to say, first off, thank you so much for your work. It's really helped me uh, change my perspective and therefore my life and helped me through a... Uh, time in my life when I, I really needed some of the insights that you offer. So thank you very much. Um, my question is as follows. I live in Houston, which is a very hot, humid, subtropical climate. Um, well, borderline subtropical. Uh, I want to get an apple tree that is more suited probably for a more western climate like California. The difference between our climate and that climate as far as the apple tree is concerned is that the uh, the temperature difference between night and day, the high and low, is a lot greater in a place like California. You might have a, a high of 100 and a low of uh, about 80 or so. Here it might be 100 with a low of 90. Um, so with hot nights like that, how do I create a microclimate it's more suitable for an apple and maybe some kind of a cold well type setup uh, with a uh, just kind of an area that traps some cooler air maybe and uh, fosters that kind of environment. Uh, yes, I could go with an apple that's a little more suited in my climate. I have one, but I want to expand my selection. And I suspect that there might be some other people out there that have a similar question. Um, thank you very much for your answer, and thanks for all you do. Bye. Well, there's really two questions there. One is, what are the best apples for an area like Houston? Um, I'm going to tell you that probably your two best uh, apple varieties for that area are going to be Anna and uh, Dorset Golden. And the good news is they, uh, they're pretty well suited to help pollinate each other. You might try, if you have room, to tuck another little tree in there, a little Everest crab apple. It probably won't produce very well for you, but it'll probably flower quite well for you and help with your pollination of your other apple trees. Um, those are probably the best things. Now, the next thing is how do I do a microclimate? Okay, it's hot as hell in Houston. It's humid as hell in Houston, and not much is going to change that. 
what you can do with a chilled microclimate in Houston is limited. The two things you can do are, number one, you, you still need sun for an apple, but you want to place your apple where it's going to get eastern sun, but not western sun. You want it in a fully shaded environment by the time that sun starts to set in the western sky. So you want no sun at the point that the ambient air temperature is on its highest. The other thing that you can do is you can put it in a depression. Cold air settles. So if you have an area or you can create an area that's lower than the surrounding areas, as air does cool in the evening, it will fall into that depression. That's why if you look at a lot of times, you look at a field, And it's got like areas that almost look like a pond, and they could be put in on purpose to be a dew pond. Um, but if you look at them when you're just getting into like, you know, it kind of froze, but it didn't freeze last night. There was a frost, but there really wasn't, right? That marginal thing. You look and none of the grass is frosted, but down in that depression, it's frosted. So if that works when it's really cold, it works when it's really warm as well. So those are your, your two best bets is, is get the stuff out of western sun, um, and get it into a place that's lower than the surrounding areas. And if there's any kind of uh, water cooling features around there, like ponds and things like that, that'll moderate climate as well to a degree. But you can only do so much in a place like southern Texas, especially the humid parts of southern Texas. So, again, varieties, Anna and Dorset Golden, uh, you're probably your two best varieties. And uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Scott from Colorado, and I just listened to your episode with Sam Kaufman about training, and it brings up something that um, maybe I pay attention to more than most, um, but I would love to get your thoughts on the balance between uh, training and um, stuff and um, objects and uh, more permanent ways of of knowledge such as books, DVDs, videos, training, stuff like that. Um, the background on this is I'm actually an insulin-dependent diabetic, and I know that if we really hit a um, shit hits man scenario, that um, my existence uh, is perishable and um, a clock starts. Um, I don't know how much time is on that clock, but I'm only going to be around for a certain amount of time. Um, If, if that situation continues. So in wanting to care for my, my wife and my two kids who are currently seven and four, um, I know I can only do so much before I begin to get really sick and, um, and, and no longer um, a valuable member of the, pop, of, of the, the community. So getting a lot of training myself is one of those things that always seems to be I don't know, selfish or something that that it's hard to necessarily sustain or or uh, or, or verify. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, on the balance between training and uh, acquiring books and stuff, um, and and maybe with some special consideration for those of us who might have um, a terminal illness that could be um, or that will be fatal in a in a grid down scenario. Thanks. Bye. Um, I've actually met this this individual, and I, I hope that that tempers some of what I'm going to say. I've I've had this question personally face to face with this gentleman. I've had this question once more on the uh, phone, and uh, I kicked it, and I and it came back again. And I was hoping it would sound different, 
and it didn't. So here's what I'm going to tell you. There's two questions here, and 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 the the the, the one eating at you more is what happens in the shit at the fan when I die. You're not going to like this. Until you change your attitude, when the shit hits the fan, you're going to be dead, even if you have insulin. To the guy asking this question, you've killed yourself in advance. You're not being a realist. I can hear it in your voice. You're accepting death before death is even knocking at the door. And the very first thing you must do is start changing your attitude to one of survival. Is it true that in this, in a, like a total grid down scenario where you can't get insulin, that all you can do is basically eat the basic subsistence diet and try to make it as long as you can and slowly starve yourself to try to stay alive? Is that true? Yes. And guess what? You can do that. That's number one. Number two, there is no reason that you should be without at least a 30-day supply of insulin at all times. So you've got a 30-day buffer before you even get into that situation if you're doing that. The concept that this nation will fall into a point where there is no options whatsoever for people like yourself is possible, but it's not the most probable in spite of all the things we've talked about that suck today and we talked about that have sucked for the last five years. 99% chance you can go on living, start acting like it. And I know that some people think I'm being mean, and I know that you might think I'm being mean, but let me tell you something. There's a point in time when a person, when you hear defeat in their voice, and the only thing you can do is kick them in the freaking ass and tell them to get up and live and be a man. So that's what I'm telling you to do. And anybody that thinks I'm being too harsh or too hard, I thought about this a long time before I answered this question. I believe this is what this man needs to hear. You are the leader of your family. Stand up and lead. Stop taking a defeatist attitude toward your future. Be bold. Be decisive and decide that right now, unless anything, unless you go to the absolute limit, you're going to survive. You're going to be there. You're going to take care of your family and you're going to deal with what comes. Because guess what? Tomorrow morning I can walk out the door, go out to pick up my mail out of my mailbox. A guy could lose a freaking control on a truck. I'm dead too. Everybody in the world can be dead tomorrow morning for any variety of reasons. You just happen to know one of yours that's possible. So cut the shit. Does this sound too harsh? I'm sorry, it's not. Right now, decide, I'm going to live. Because until you do, I cannot help you. I can't. And there's people that are far more likely to be dead 30 days into a disaster than you are. And mo mo mostly, I would tell them the same things. I would tell them the same things. Plan to live. Because planning to die will get you that. Death. Seriously. Skills versus stuff. I also get this from you. You think that if, well, if I buy enough of an information knowledge database of library, then when I'm gone, that, that, that'll be there for them. And the, the concept that people are going to be in the middle of a crisis reading a book and figuring out how to do things is not good. You don't know how to do it in advance. So I would say this. Information over stuff Skills over information. The information is useless until it's supplied. You should start teaching your children these skills and your wife these skills now, and you should start learning them yourself. Well, I might not be there to do them, so maybe it's more important that, no, bullshit. I might not be there to do the things that I do. 
This, if this thing goes wrong, it goes sideways, it goes really, really bad. Anybody is in your situation. Everybody's in the same situation. Everybody could be leaving behind a family and they thought I was going to be there to take care of them. Everybody should be taking the same approach. Plan to live and put contingencies in place in case that doesn't happen or in case you're injured. Teach knowledge and skills to everyone around you. But honestly, I can't answer the question any further. When you call me back and you want to ask the question of knowledge versus skills versus stuff, and you want to do from a standpoint of, I'm going to fight my ass off to live no matter what happens, I'll answer the rest of the question. If anybody thinks I'm being too harsh, when you hear defeat in somebody's voice, you call on them to stand. I'm calling on you, sir, to stand. Your family's worth it, and you're worth it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jason from BA. Um, I hear a lot of talk about the teacup generation, and I, I don't disagree. Um, but I also hear a lot of times, you know, this fashion Gen Y and Gen Z. Um, but you know what I've actually noticed is Gen Y, um, my wife is Gen Y, I'm Gen X. Gen Y are the tradition breakers. They're changing things or changing what is culturally acceptable. Gen X kind of changed what we accepted, but Gen Y is saying, now you actually have to accept the new paradigm or be rejected. And it's a powerful shift. And as they start coming into politics, uh, America is going to be completely different on a political end. We're already seeing it. Um, but I'm also noticing uh, what I call Gen Z or the Zen generation. Um, and the thing that I'm finding are... These are like my friends, teenage or young 20-ish kids, is that they're into gardening. They're into a lot more crafting. They're not being as material as we are. They're not wanting a big screen TV. They're like, give me my iPhone. I've got my, or my, you know, smartphone. I've got that, and I'm content with that. That lets me do everything I want. It's like they're downsizing. They're lightening their lives. They're getting more in touch with the earth. And I see almost a Zen factor with the next generation. Like they're kind of saying we're not, we, we don't see this whole future of retirement. We don't see all this college stuff. They're really just kind of getting to a more simplified life. And I think that's actually something us older people can pick up from some of these uh, Gen Z crowds. So I'm just kind of chiming in on uh, defense of some of the stuff that the next generation is actually getting right that we might be missing on. Um, I think we need to think a little bit when we're talking about things like the teacup generation, generation X, generation Y, and, and understand that when I talk about them, I rely on people in this audience and who hear me to use their brains and understand that the teacup generation is not every member of, you know, generation Y and generation, and what they actually call the millennials and, and even part of Gen X. In fact, I believe that most of Gen X are teacups and that the, the, you know, the millennials, the, the guys, this guy's talking about are, are not even teacups anymore. They're freaking China plates. Like, the Gen X generation, which is part of what I am, we like some of us were like the last of our kind. You know, the, the kids that you know ran, you know, laid on their backs like a lute and took us a, a, a skateboard when they were 
eight years old and went down 150 yards of steep slope on a freaking road while other kids tried to make sure you didn't get run over by a car and wiped out and got up and did it again. There was some of us like that. There was even a kind of a core of it, but it's like dwindled even from there. And then like the generation before us, was there was more people that had that mindset. I'm just going to be all right no matter what. I'm going to deal with it. Um, but when I say teacups and china plates today and the lack of resiliency and the ability to deal with situations and the poor me crap and all the other BS that's out there, I don't mean that everybody in that generation's in that, that bucket. Uh, just like I don't think that, like, you know, they call the World War II generation the greatest generation. Not everybody in the World War II great generation was a tough, uh, imp improvising individual with a high, you know, quality ethic. It's just, That was the preponderance of that generation. There were plenty of wussy pukes in the World War II generation, just like there's plenty of people that are resilient, tough, knowledgeable, innovative in the teacup generation and the China Play generation. Right? It's just that what's the preponderance? And the preponderance is toward being weak, expecting things to be granted to you, and blaming other people for your problems. That's the preponderance. It doesn't mean there's not a huge surge. And what you're seeing is often, you know, talked about in like the fourth turning. There's a certain, you know, group within that group that starts to look at it and go, man, we just can't sit around and, you know, expect this to fix itself anymore. And we're going to have to become part of the solution. And it's part of why I love permaculture. I go to a permaculture thing and you see lots of young people. 18, 19, 20 years old, a little bit overly idealistic, but good. We need it. We need it. Um, we really need it. And yeah, a lot of them are saying, how do I, how do I live in this new world? But politically, there's a problem too, because these, these folks are willing to give up all of their privacy and a lot of their liberty. And that's a problem. And the hope is that some of these people from this, this generation, As they experience this transformation and they do start to fix problems for themselves and for others, realize the empowerment that that represents and realize that the government won't do it for them. The, the problem I have with a lot of people in the, the mind, this mindset that you're talking about, it's not just, it's not just millennials and it's not just Gen Y or even Gen X. There's even people, you know, I'm seeing people in their fifties with this whole understanding of this new way of things and is, is that, They always seem to think that somehow government can help them. And I've, I've said this to so many of these people. If you try to create, fix a big problem, a really big problem in the world, you'll, you'll quickly find that there are solutions. And you'll quickly find that you have two problems. And the first one will be the one you think is the problem, the bigger problem. And that's money. You'll think... If I could just, now not money for me, right? The guy that's decided, hey, I got my iPhone and my iPad and I, you know, I have a Netflix account or whatever and I don't need the TV and I got the internet and all. They're using technology and they're, they're making their lives a little bit simpler and living on a little bit less and figuring out how to make it with what they have and all that. But they'll think money, like that, that person starts to be actually kind of in a very positive way, very selfless. And what can I, like, starts looking around and goes, okay, I got this figured out. This is actually pretty cool. And because they're not vested into society much yet, they're much more able to live that way. They're not worried about a mortgage payment because they don't have one. They're not worried about putting food on the table for their kids because they don't have any. Okay? So they start saying, well, like, maybe I should do something to help other people. So they find a problem. And they think, wow, okay, like, there's hungry people there. And I don't have much, but I eat every day. 
So let me go figure out how to, how to solve that problem. They start to realize like community gardens and things like that are a solution. So they start thinking, well, the problem is that like I need money. If I had money, like charity or grant or whatever, if I had some money, then I could start to do a lot. And they, a lot of times they scrape together a little bit and they do a lot with a little bit. I think, man, if I could just, so eventually that person's really motivated and they actually attract some, and some people that want to be charitable or they find some other source of funding and they get some money and they get some, or maybe they don't get money, but they get labor and stuff. People are willing to help them. The next thing they'll run into is the government that's supposedly there to help you. And most of them, even while they're banging their head against the wall of government with a regulation that says, well, you can't do this. You can't put a garden there. This isn't safe. You don't have this. Or they try to generate jobs and they say, well, you don't have a business permit. And the government is just smacking the shit out of them and they're like, we need more government. No, you need less government and more people like yourself. And it's a very hard, it shouldn't be. It should be an easy sell. It's like, listen, dude. You're kicking ass. This is awesome. Look what you're doing. This is great. Your problems, the government's in your way. Yep. Well, so you need less government. No, we need the government to get involved with this. And they don't understand that the government is involved with this. This is a place that can go two ways. This is a place that can go two ways. This next generation has in it some seeds of brilliance and some people that really want to make a difference. And my generation wants to help them. And the generation before mine, the tweeners, between the ba baby boomers and the World War II generation, right, or actually, actually between the baby boomers and the Gen X generation, those people largely, these are people that are like in their early 50s right now, very early 50s or late 40s, that tweener generation, not yet, they're active and they want to help. The problem is all through that generational uh, range, From the tweeners all the way up to the millennials, there's a huge bent towards socialism, a huge programming by the system, and a huge belief that just if we just get the right people in there and the right policies in there, everything will fix itself. All while the state has built a surveillance system that's tracking everything they're doing with that iPhone, everything they're doing with that iPad, and it's constantly obstructing their attempts to make the world a better place. And yet they still believe in it. And that sets us up for a place where if we do have a massive economic shift, where you have to ask yourself, will these people stand and just implement solutions, or will they continue to ask permission and ask for help from the state? If they'll innovate solutions and stand, we can take this crisis and turn it into a very positive shift. I'm not saying without pain. I'm not saying without gnashing of teeth. I'm not saying without anguish. And I'm not even saying without some people not making it to the other side. But it can be overall a positive thing. If that group of people who will be the primary guard when this happens, it will be the 20, the mid-20s, early 30s, the people largely doing the work, in charge, making decisions, most listened to, If those people don't stand, if those people don't reach out to other generations, and if we in these other generations aren't there for them, and we're not all implementing solutions together, this nation will turn into the largest police state that's ever existed. Your worst nightmares of tyranny will come to be in a society that will largely look like it's not the case. 
but everything that you try to do will be questioned and prevented. And we'll have a society perfectly divided among classes and controlled by a state that has its own well-being placed above that of its citizenry. That's where we're headed for right now. But I'm with you. I think some of these young people have a huge opportunity to be part of the solution. But only if they'll understand that it is they that are the solution. Not the government that they've been trained to trust. And far too many of them have been trained to trust the government. And the trainings went very well. Many of them say they don't trust the government. But as soon as they start talking, you realize they very much do. They just trust this side of government versus that side of government. That's like trusting this rattlesnake over that rattlesnake. The only way we can move this nation on a return to liberty is to turn away from government. Not to attack it. Passive, peaceful resistance and the rapid implementation of solutions by individuals We talked earlier this week about how, well, what if every single person out there just started encrypting all their activity on the Internet and then, like, you know, set up a little bot that looks like kitten pictures all day when you're not using your computer just to overload the system? There's more than one way to overload the system. Sometimes you can overload the system in very positive ways. If there were a thousand front yard gardens going in a day, what chance would a system have of making them not come? If there were 500 community gardens just being planted in empty, vacant lots a day, what 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 city code enforcement officer is going to handle that? 1520 in a city in one weekend, permablitz style. What are they going to do about it? If everywhere and every place there was an opportunity for something to be done positive, it was just done with nobody asking any permission. Are we there yet? Are we ready? Do we have enough sentinels that have risen to do it? No. And it's why you hear about the battles that you do. This guy with his chickens, that person just trying to do something positive. That's why you hear about the battles. Because they're pioneers right now, and we need them. But when the pioneers get enough traction, if this next generation will follow, and if we'll support them, just maybe, just maybe this can go totally different than any of us expect. I will tell you this, it's a nice thought, it is possible, but just like the pensions I talked about, do not depend on it. Plan for the worst, hope for the best, and keep on building in your own life, in your own liberty, in your own freedom. And I'll say one more time to the gentleman that I kind of snapped a little bit at today, I believe, I believe in your ability to be a survivor. I absolutely believe in it. I just want you to believe in it too. And that's what I want for everybody in this audience. Believe in your ability to adapt, improvise, overcome, and survive. Put a little bit of fatality in there. We're all humans. We are all afflicted with a terminal disease called life. So damn it. Make the most out of that life. Every day you live is a day closer to the grave. That's true for all of us. But every day you live, you have an immense opportunity to make a difference for those that we know you will eventually leave behind. Build a legacy. And if society falls, let them not look back 
at us and say they did nothing. If society falls, let them look back to what we were trying to do. Understand it. And at some point, someone will pick it up and continue. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.